Chapter 2, Joining Up, in which the author recounts making a choice to become a full member of a membershipless non-church, which was, however, the only correct place to present oneself Sunday morning. When I turned twelve, I asked for my place at the Lord's table, and three men from our church came to visit me at my parents' house. I wanted in. It was like a Catholic being confirmed. A lot of kids waited until more like sixteen to ask in, but I wanted in at twelve. Some kids are let in as early as nine. So the three men came over, unofficially but very actual elders. And there had been a church meeting where they talked about me. And there would be one after they questioned me, too. At my house, my parents cleared out, and the men talked about how solemn it was and what a privilege it was to partake of the emblems each and every Lord's Day morning with those who were gathered at the Lord's table. Though they called it the Lord's table, they clearly felt that it was their job, as gatekeepers, to deny people access to and cast people out from it, just as if it were their own table. They clearly didn't feel like this gatekeeper job belonged to or was being carried out correctly in any other Christian group. So we had to keep separate to avoid contamination from those laxer groups. They talked about how important it was that there was nothing in my young life that would make taking my place at the Lord's table dishonor the Lord. So, if I swore or fooled around with girls or drank alcohol or went to the movie theater or live concerts or shoplifted or gambled or smoked or had gotten a divorce, I needed to speak up right then or risk defiling the Lord's table and with it his people. Risk connecting his name with moral evil. They didn't actually mention any of these things by name, of course. They didn't need to. They just referred to all of that as anything in your life and expected me to know what they meant. And I did know what they meant. I could proudly say that at age 12, there was nothing in my life that was a problem. I was clean. There was nothing in my life anyway, in general. Nothing good or bad. Nothing whatsoever. It was hardly a life at all. My life was largely being piously, consciously unlived. So I was good to go. And I was allowed to take my place at the Lord's table, the gatekeepers decided. It was announced the following Lord's Day that they'd admitted me. Sixteen years later, other gatekeepers in a neighboring assembly I was then attending would decide that I'd dishonored the Lord by writing a parody of an outreach pamphlet of theirs, and I would from that point on be shut out of that circle. Was from that point on, supposedly, put away from the Lord's table. For good. I asked back in... After one meeting in which they predicted a failure to ever understand me, they refused to meet to discuss the matter ever after. As I understand the Bible verses they appended to the letter that informed me of my excommunication, Paul gave instructions for rapists and extortionists and drunks and other such mofos to be put out from among the group of Christians in the area turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it says. These men, however, informed me that they'd put me away not from among the group of Christians, but from the very Lord's table itself, globally, and not for rape or extortion, for satire. But I get ahead of myself. Back to the reality of suddenly being a 12-year-old full member of the memberless Plymouth Brethren non-church. Drinking alcohol was not okay outside of Lord's Day morning breaking of bread when we drank a sip of wine each, if we were members. 
My first time, I sat proudly up beside my parents after having sat for a couple of years in what was jokingly called Sinner's Row in the back of the room next to my grandfather. He would die without ever being a member again because he divorced his wife. There is no forgiveness for divorcing someone in the T.W. Brethren. My grandmother, his troubled wife, however, sat right up next to my parents because she'd not been the one to initiate the divorce, having merely been the one with the untreated lifelong emotional and mental problems which made my grandfather feel he needed to divorce her, though he still cared for her very much. So I left my grandfather in the back and went to sit back up there with my folks, feeling that I'd entered the inner circle, and I tore off a small piece from the torn open loaf of white bakery bread that was extended on a plate to each of us, and took a small sip of the sweet, fruity communion wine. I'd never drank alcohol before, and didn't like the taste terribly much, but I liked the way it felt warm going down, as my esophagus and stomach absorbed the alcohol that communion wine is laced with. The wine was to represent both the blood of Jesus, shed for us, and also the cup of joy that was ours, now that the bitter cup of judgment had been drained for us by him. I now feel that the lack of wine ever being used as a part of any kind of celebration, including weddings and brethren houses, really kind of made that whole a cup of wine is a symbol of joy and celebration in the Bible thing fall upon deaf hearts in our cases. We knew little of celebration, didn't even celebrate Christmas, Halloween, or Easter. Unlike the stricter branches of brethren, we had birthdays, though. Darlene writes, I was not allowed to attend any Christmas concerts at school, as this was considered worldly entertainment. I would sit alone in the classroom for the time the concert was on. After I got to sit up there Lord's Day morning and partake of the emblems, the only remaining church rites of passage left for me to aspire to were to speak up during the meetings and pass the emblems around and pray and so on. These were an option because I was male. Of course, all this wasn't normally done until one was an adult, and so I held off until I was about twenty, at which time a division happened and my attendance dropped steadily off, making me feel unworthy to speak up very often anyway. I did a few things a couple of times, though. Suggested we sing a hymn, prayed. It was nerve-wracking to be driving that big ship, to be handling that whole room and directing the worship or Bible contemplation of twenty or forty people. Pre-division, it might have been sixty or seventy. And when I spoke up in Bible discussions, having gotten my degree in English literature, it only showed that I didn't see symbolism and connotation in quite the same way as the other brethren people. They seemed to me to be doing a remarkably inconsistent and arbitrary job. I seemed to them like someone saying unfamiliar foreign things, dangerous chaotic things. What do they teach in those schools? Our way is the only right way. It was a long time before I developed serious problems with the one right church doctrine we taught. To begin with, I absolutely believed it deep down. It was the most normal thing in the world to hear it preached upon. It was preached upon every week. It didn't sound like pride even a bit, at first, nor did we think it was bigoted. After all, we were saying that there was one superior place to be a member of, not one superior race to be a member of. True, we did think that if our children married Christians from other churches, this was really too bad and a bit beneath them. We asked, what will the children be? We weren't one of the brethren groups which forbid marriage outside their group. True, we did refuse to mix our evangelism, outreach, and social efforts with those of other churches. We wanted to keep our doctrine pure. True, we did forbid our kids attending other churches' social activities. 
We didn't want them mixing. But that was just normal, right? No bigotry in it, was there? An Australian news anchor describing the insular brethren lifestyle called it religious apartheid. I had no problem with it, though. Using the Bible to back up the idea that there was one right place was easy, too. You just went through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and found a list of physical objects, events, and encounters. And you pointed out that battles, houses, Balaam's ass, continents, countries, people, pomegranates, sheep, death, coronations, mountains, and trees could all clearly be seen to be in one place at one point in time. Proof in Scripture. Samson's ass's jawbone, the song that David played Saul, the waters in Genesis 1 were all in one place at a time. When David went and got those five smooth stones with which to slay Goliath, they were, sure enough, found in just the one place, that one brook. When God was working in Genesis 1, he gathered all the water into one place, and he gathered the land to another one place. And the Jews were to worship in Jerusalem, which was a place too, one place. And just like that, so were we, to be affiliated, in terms of church, with the one place, the only official, God-sanctioned church franchise. We said that the one right place was a person, and that it was Jesus, and there was only one Jesus. But Jesus had a list of street addresses, and only those few hundred places were all in the one right place. All other places were just other places. If I was in Chicago, New York City, Montreal, or Toronto, I knew where I had to go in order to be in the one right place rather than just some other place. And I knew that if I was in Boston, most decades there was no one there, no place at all. It all made perfect sense to us. My eventual problems with it were helped along by the object lessons learned during the political infighting that went on in my 20s. But even when I started to have those problems, I still could do Sunday mornings for quite a few years. I just pretended no one else was in the room, and that rock of tightly controlled heart matter could melt hotly deep inside there where I kept it locked closed and cold during the week. I would plunge myself deep under the hot cascade of shame, gratitude, reverence, awe, and melancholy, and I would wonder if I'd ever come back again for air. It was like taking a shower made you not want to even talk to a non-church person ever again, Christian or otherwise, because they would never get it, and they'd get the world all over your freshly scoured holy skin, would ruin the spanking new righteous you had going on. Although no one has changed the stories in the Bible, they changed the songs in many modern churches, as I've already said. Modern churches that we viewed as mere human experiments that God was not in. Songs were significant. Songs were the way we children were introduced to God. They were the assembly language of our programming. Our church behavior and feeling and thinking were encoded in the language of those old hymns. The modern stuff is a whole different language for computers with entirely new operating systems, wholly unlike our own. To this day, worship style is a great divider of Christian groups. Some groups have two separate Sunday worship services, one traditional and one modern divides the congregation up into who goes to the one, who goes to the other, and who goes to both, and who didn't show up at all. Christians in any given community tend to subdivide into little church groups anyway, sometimes with several church groups meeting within a block of one another, but ignoring each other's existence entirely. At the root of it, if you look back in time, there is almost always the story of someone not seeing eye to eye with a group of Christians and going off to do better, to be more scriptural. 
I have come to believe this splitting up rather than working things out thing is directly disobedient and contrary to how God intended and how the New Testament says Christian community is meant to work. I think a community is supposed to have a strong network of Christians, not fragmented groups. Yet groups who won't forgive a man for divorcing his wife will, repeatedly, quite readily divorce half of the congregation and have them pack up their prayers and preaching and move out. For its own part, my church felt completely at home. Well, I'd go so far as to say they preferred and taught by example that it was absolutely correct to live and act as if there were really no other Christians in the town. None to speak of, anyway. Ruth writes, I recall being so indoctrinated as a small child that I literally thought that a woman who wore pants, trousers, could not be a Christian woman. When I read the scripture used to make that claim as a discerning adult and realized that the surrounding scriptures were completely ignored, I felt that application was quite a stretch. If there technically were other Christians in town, we always lived as if they had nothing to do with us, that we had no responsibility or connection to them, and that we were better off keeping our distance. There's connections that contaminate. There's things in this world that contaminate. Not only moral questions, but doctrinal questions contaminate. And ecclesiastical connections contaminate as well. A much-respected Brethren missionary once opined before a thousand Plymouth Brethren people back in the day, while the division was brewing. Contaminate. For those who don't speak Brethren, this speech was being heard by most of us as, It is extremely important not to let our lives and our assembly and our souls get contaminated with toxins. And there are things in the surrounding community and the churches that will contaminate us if we have anything much to do with others. It's not safe. Don't mess around. Not only are there physical and sexual and cultural kinds of self-indulgence that can rub off on us and befoul our Christian lives, but the doctrine and theology of other Christians can rub off on us as well. You don't want to be all filthy, do you? Anne got the same kind of teaching from her father. She writes, I remember feeling like I got principles, worked as they were, like the one I called the germ theory of fellowship, uh, that, that you could get contaminated if you broke bread with someone who was doing something bad. Dad explained it was like washing dishes. You keep the clean and dirty ones separate. I understood and didn't question until I had a friend who broke bread with other Christians without worrying about whether she was being contaminated. I asked her about whether she was concerned about it, and she said it's between them and God, not her business. That stuck with me. It was a seed planted. Living this way in practice, we were, however, always taught that, in theory anyway, all Christians were one body. So all Christians were one, the teaching went, but all the other Christian brothers and sisters in town simply didn't seem to know to show up at the right street address. So what could you do? That was certainly their own problem, wasn't it? If the Christians living across the road from us who attended that church up our block didn't show up in our church, what could we do? We had to just go on with our Christian lives and always remember to thank God and wonder at how blessed we were to have been gathered aright and always remind each other how, but for the grace of God, we might well be associated with their unscriptural church shenanigans. Just imagine. I remember sitting as a child and being told, as to other non-brethren Christian books, that although there is certainly water in a mud puddle, why would you choose to drink from one when you've got a pitcher of cold, clear water right on the table? 
Right after the first major church division in my lifetime happened, Bruce Anstey started disseminating endless publications justifying our splintered testimony. Claiming a right side in our big stupid divisions despite knowing full well that the Bible spoke out against divisions, numbering them among the works of the flesh, despite living on the other side of the continent from division ground zero. Taking a parable of Jesus normally used simply to present the power of faith to bring about growth, Ansi wrote things like this. Matthew records that the Lord Jesus taught the multitudes that a vast system of things would grow out of the original simplicity of Christianity, and that in the end, it would have no resemblance to what there was at the beginning. He used the figure of a mustard seed being planted in the earth and growing out of proportion until it became a huge tree where the birds of the air would lodge. The large tree speaks of dominion and power, Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 3 through 7, and Daniel chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, 2 through 22, and 34. Thus, the Lord indicated that the Christian profession would develop into a great worldly institution having an aspect of grandeur and pretension to it. It has become a great system of religion, politics, and business. It is a place where men strive for honors, greatness, and power. The birds of the air speak of evil spirits, Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, that would get a hold of the minds of men and influence them to teach erroneous doctrines, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. If we have ever had the opportunity to witness the noise that emanates from a tree full of birds, we would understand how apt a picture this is of the confusion that exists in the Christian testimony. The birds are all chirping at the same time, all seemingly having something to say, but their voices are all conflicting. This is just what we hear when we look and listen to the thousand voices of the various so-called churches in Christendom. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. The Lord Jesus went on to speak about the woman who hid leaven in three measures of meal. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. This speaks of another aspect of the ruin that has come into the Christian profession. If the birds in the huge tree illustrate the great outward profession that would develop, the leaven in the meal speaks of the great inward corruption that would also permeate Christendom. Leaven in Scripture is a type of evil. Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Mark chapter 8, verse 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. The meal is a type of Christ who is the bread of life. He is the spiritual food for the children of God. John chapter 6, verses 33 through 35 and verses 51 through 58 of that same chapter. Hence, the Lord indicated that the professing church, the, the woman, would corrupt the food of the children of God by introducing evil doctrine, mixing it with the truth of his person. This is exactly what has happened. Many evil and erroneous teachings have been associated with the person of Christ in the vast profession of Christendom. What can be seen in this typical Brethren missive is the association of other churches with evil and that which would corrupt the spiritual food of children, while our own group was seen as not only not merely a church, but the scriptural exception to all of this other nonsense and noise. We had good food, while they had nasty stuff. When Jesus tells the story about the kingdom of heaven, it's about how the power of faith makes the kingdom of heaven grow like a mustard seed that becomes a tree so large that many birds can nest in it. 
Then, using leaven or yeast in a positive light for once, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to yeast, mixed into normal everyday flour, and how it spreads through it and grows unstoppably, as the gospel was about to do throughout the world, when the bread rises. When Bruce Anstey tells the same stories, suddenly they're about the disgusting arrogance of tall trees and the dangerous evil of birds nesting in them like Sauron's spies and all their noise and individualistic, humanistic, avian confusion. Suddenly the stories aren't about how the kingdom of heaven is here and how it will grow and thrive. They're about evil in churches and how important it is to separate from it. I think the question that needs to be asked of a writer like this is, what exactly was the leaven of the Pharisees about which Jesus spoke? Was it really the lack of lockstep ecclesiastical uniformity of which Anstey complains? And for that matter, when is God going to judge all of the birds and frogs and insects in the world for wrecking everything with their highly individualistic, unstandardized songs? No doubt he should correct all of that immediately, enforce time signatures and keys for them all to correctly sing in or be silent. What church do you go to? Naturally, all of this, we're the only right church, and we don't want to get other churches' cooties on us stuff, meant that every time I met someone who said he or she was also a Christian, my instinctive trained reaction was one of guarded suspicion. My circle of Christian friends growing up included not a single person who didn't go to our meeting. When the church divisions happened, people who'd been in my social circle left that when they left our group, and we never really reconnected. And if I'd gone and worshipped at their almost identical to ours brethren church even once, I'd have been kicked out of my own group. Of course, when meeting Christians from other churches, there should have been a natural reaching out to them and recognizing a like human being, a fellow Christian, oneness. But should is a great word, right? Kyle Moore, besides having the same last name as me, was the son of a Presbyterian minister. I met him in grade three at Lombardy School. I remember being fascinated that mere churches were allowed to sing songs like Amazing Grace. That was ours, wasn't it? After pondering it a bit, I decided it was actually very interesting that these other churches were kind of like our correct obedience to the Word of God non-church unit. Not as good, clearly. I wouldn't go out to their services, of course, but still cool. The commonality of our Christianity was in my heart when I met other Christians like Kyle, but it was kind of overmatched by something else, my training, that the special position of correctness that people in our church enjoyed had to be protected from other inferior Christians, so that, hey, you're a Christian too, joy, was squished by a kind of suspicious, cautious arrogance. And of course, when meeting other Christians, I always ask the same question that Christians the world over reflexively ask in that situation. What church do you go to? Like dogs sniffing each other's butts, taking each other's temperature, measuring each other up. I asked this question, like everyone else, because I needed to check the name of the church they went to against my database of how weird that church's doctrine was thought by the Plymouth Brethren to be. How far from us were they ecclesiastically? measuring their normalcy against our own. Note, according to scripture, that is not wise. But I'd ask, you weren't actually a Pentecostal or something like that, were you? It was fun to meet them, still, 
I certainly wouldn't be going to their church, nor they to mine, so we wouldn't probably be hanging out, but for the sake of friendliness and expediency, if we were work colleagues or people going to the same school, it was good to know how close to being normal and correct this person's Christianity was. Perhaps a friendly wave over that uncrossed doctrinal fence would be shared. Nice, if not taken too far. Had to protect oneself, of course. Important not to, for example, stop believing in the rapture or infant baptism or the primacy of the King James translation of the Bible or something like that, or the one right place. In recent times, the overt teaching of the one right place doctrine has all but disappeared in the brethren group that excommunicated me, though occasional sermons at Bible conferences in places like Montreal still take place by brothers who kind of specialize in doing what they can to make that particular teaching sound inarguable. But when even hardliners like my father started saying, it might be true that we are the only right place, but it's prideful to teach that, I knew the old regime had crumbled a bit. And then, given the cascade of divisions and subdivisions he'd suffered recently, my dad has now entirely laid aside the very idea that where he goes is the Lord's table and that they have a right to refuse Christians access to it and that no other group can claim it. It took a lot to bring him to this point. I'm not sure how long this will last either. Still, many brethren kind of believe this one-place stuff, and most live as they ever did, with those walls of ecclesiastical separation as firmly in place as ever, carefully keeping Christians from each other, no matter what is said, about unity. And the thing is, we need each other, even if, especially if, we're different. To this day, when a young Plymouth Brethren person wants to impress me with how free he or she is, I always get told about precisely the same shockingly out-there behavior used to demonstrate this bohemian excess of freedom they now enjoy. I have even gone to other churches a couple of times, and I haven't been kicked out or lectured or anything. We can do that now. Wow. Free at last. That didn't used to be the way of things. As I'll go into later, Elizabeth was kicked out of an open brethren group in the 60s because she was secretly practicing with a choir group. Wasn't planning on cheating on the Lord and his correct church by actually joining the Baptist church or anything. Just wanted to sing with a choir, but the brethren kicked her out. For disloyalty, essentially. For apostasy. For falling away. For dubious connections. To protect the Lord's table from association with her and her untoward licentiousness. This is how it was for us growing up, and it didn't seem prideful. And we knew so very many Christians, in our own group. It wasn't a terribly bad thing to teach, was it? Doesn't every religious group deep down rather think they are the only ones really getting things right? Or was that just us? How We Treated the Bible The Bible was central to meeting culture. We gathered around it. We worshipped the Holy Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. That's not original. I heard it from Pastor Randy Williams. In the beginning of my life, I was always taught about how we had the Word of God, and it was very important to read one chapter of it each morning before doing anything else. We were superstitious about this and felt we'd have bad luck, no blessing, if we didn't get that chapter in. No matter what anyone says about brethren people, we grow up knowing our Bibles. Memorizing the Bible Long before I was old enough to read, I was asked to memorize parts of the King James Bible. First a verse, and then as I grew a bit bigger, entire chapters or portions of them. 
verses that said things like, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3 and 23. Looking back, I remember going out to Sunday school with my card. These were little books that we brought to Sunday school with us. I have no idea where Sunday school teachers bought them. They were just a bit of colored cardstock folded in half to make a little book with squares all over both sides of it. Each verse you were able to recite earned you a sticker to put it in one of the squares. Some teachers used boards with stars or thumbtacks instead. I remember wanting to get a blue card as often as I could, carefully avoiding the pink and yellow ones. Green was kind of okay, too. Every week at Sunday school, we were assigned a Bible verse or verses to have memorized by the following week. In the 17th century language, of course, with book, chapter, and verse references at the end, the cards were to keep track of our progress. We'd start Sunday school off in mid-afternoon each Sunday by singing some children's songs and having a small sermon. Then we'd be dismissed to our gender-segregated little classes. Women got to teach girls' classes and the classes for the very youngest boys, too. It was the only time I heard women teach about the Bible. Once I was no longer a little boy, most brethren women were carefully not teaching or usurping authority over any of us males, even if we were only ten. In our little mini-classes, we had a comforting weekly routine. First, we'd have to say our Bible verses. If we did any kind of job at all, we'd get a sticker to put in one of the boxes on our card. Once every box on our card had a sticker, we'd get a prize. Many teachers had a shoebox or similar filled with little plastic trinkets, little tops, toy cars, plastic pencil sharpeners shaped like cars or boats, a lot of plastic things with Bible verses on them. Nowadays, I hear tastes run more to candy or money. I got a little rubber change purse shaped like a football with a verse on it, which read, Be strong and of good courage. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. I remember playing with it at school in grade four and Mrs. McRae saying, Michael, you'll have to be strong and of good courage if you don't put that away and listen. I was a bit shocked that she dared mock God and the scriptures like that. Blasphemous. If you lost your card, you had to start over again. The verses we memorized were mostly what we called gospel verses. These were verses taken anywhere from the Bible, which out of context could be applied to presenting a Christian evangelical message. I remember memorizing Isaiah 53 when I was in grade 5 or 6. The first half of it goes, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I got that first half down, and then the second half too. I wasn't good at remembering chapter and verse, but I was like a little tape recorder about memorizing the words. When I got to high school, Shakespeare was just more of the same kind of stuff. I loved all those words. They sang. I loved being able to acquire and repeat them. It was like learning spells, chanting ancient incantations. After we said our verses, we'd get a little Bible story or sermon like what we heard at home. Old Testament stuff, those silly Jews, if they had just listened to and obeyed God. 
and New Testament ones, those silly Jewish disciples and assemblies, if only they had just believed and obeyed the Lord Jesus and the apostles. The formula we were being taught was, as Laura points out, obedience to the rules equals blessing. God was rules, lots of them. For most of us, there was limited access to the Incredible Hulk, Archie, Batman, Star Wars, and the Dukes of Hazzard. But we had Noah, David, Samson, Jonah, Balaam, Daniel, and a host of others in their place. We grew up hearing about them every single day. Who is the Word of God? The Word of God. I grew up hearing all about it. Not just God speaking, not just what the whole world was constructed and framed by, not simply how light came into the universe, not just any old thing God said when his voice was heard by any number of prophets if it was never written down, certainly not just what God has to say to us today in all of the ways he speaks to us. No, we use that term, interestingly, in a way the Bible itself does not ever really use it. It was always used by brethren people to refer to the printed book itself, rather than the Lord Jesus come to do the will of the Father, or God reaching people by speaking to them before our Bible was ever written down, let alone published. When the scriptures say things like, And the word of God came unto Jeff, we didn't feel that this was really the word of God. No, we felt the word of God was the title that ought to go on the front of the leather-bound paper book the anthology itself, and everything that was inside it, and nothing else. No one really wanted to talk about how that anthology got edited and assembled. Things like the fact that there were a lot of books left out of it. Things like the fact that the final choices as to which books were to be left out of what would become our Bible were made a few hundred years after the last included book had been written, with hundreds of other books written in that time, and each not deemed a good fit. The Bible tends to call itself things like the scriptures, the, the writing or the script, and it sometimes refers to each book collected within it by the name of the human being who wrote it down or dictated it. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Plymouth Brethren men used to hold their heavy, carefully worn, leather-bound Bibles high, wave them around, and pat them aggressively while intoning, We, beloved brethren, have been given the blessed, holy, divinely inspired Word of God. Or, we are privileged to hold in our very hands the God-breathed, holy, perfect Word of God. And they didn't mean the Lord Jesus when they used that title. They meant what the Bible calls the Scriptures the thing they were holding in their hand. We didn't thump our Bibles, really, though. It would have been thought irreverent. My father had a fit if I ever allowed a Bible to touch the floor. It was like Marines with the American flag. Just setting a Bible on the floor beside you, if you were sitting on the floor, or putting it under your chair, got a huge reaction from him. It always felt like superstition to me. But I was trained that way. To this day, you won't see me put a Bible on the floor. The Bible was magic, and it had to be the King James Bible from 1769 for the magic to work, not the original King James Bible from 1611, and certainly not the new King James Bible from 1982 either. It had to be the 1769 version. Otherwise, it might be wrong, and it might actually cause more harm than good to read it so one shouldn't bother. It was the only translation that was read in our meetings. New Christians, excited by the New International Version 1978 Bibles, were often warned about how satanic that translation was. I heard that happening many times. 
and I myself was always frightened to look in an NIV, because modern translations were all sloppy, emotional, subjective paraphrases anyway, weren't they? Missing the point of the original wording? That's what many of us thought. That was said out loud at meeting by many men many times in my youth. Anne mentions being a little girl in the missions field with her family and being shocked that the native people didn't use the King James because they didn't speak English. She remembers trying to literally translate the King James Version verses she'd memorized into Spanish on the fly and being met with confusion because translation is a bit more complex than that. Spanish Bibles go back to far older sources than merely the King James, though it was translated when Shakespeare was still alive, and it really sounds like it. A few years ago, my unchurched brother-in-law was first tackling the Bible. I don't know where he got the idea, but for whatever reason he thought that he'd have to read it in the 1769 King James Version, which he was gamely tackling. But that thing's hard. You have to understand smitten, hast, cumbered, asunder, billows, and stuff like that, which not everyone has grown up with. So I told him to try the English Standard Version 2001, based upon a 1971 translation called the Revised Standard Version. He was at first concerned that more modern translations would skip the hard bits, simply editing them out of the Bible entirely. I was quick to allay his fears by pointing out that the very verses themselves were numbered, so you couldn't skip any without people being able to tell. For though he fain would read it, he had been smitten with doubt, and was sore afraid, which was and let unto him, and thus he did not feel duly suffered to read it ably, and verily durst not do so. His confidence was smitten asunder into potsherds of divers sizes, Sila. That's why I told him to try the ESV, and he found it much easier, and thanked me for recommending it. My father would not have approved had we discussed the matter with him, so of course we didn't. Back in the day, it was the New International Version which was scandalizing our church with its plain modern wording. When it comes to translating literature across hemispheres, cultures, and millennia, there is a huge risk certain things will simply not translate. Certain turns of phrase, idioms, or allusions to things that only existed in ancient cultures long dead in particular. It would be like us getting the apostles to read something with Simpsons references in it or mentions of the Internet, Santa Claus, or Star Wars characters doesn't translate really. You can't just translate high-speed broadband Wi-Fi into Greek and assume they'd get it, or Chewbacca the Wookiee either. So you can simply leave passages of the Bible worded more or less the way they are and risk modern people not having a clue about them because something cultural or grammatic about them no longer makes any sense in modern English to modern minds. Or you can help and paraphrase heavily, more or less pretending the book was written in the present day, in the English you see before you, by people who lived and thought and felt more or less like you do. Imagine that working backward rather than forward through history, for people who'd never seen Star Wars. And with him in times of yore, verily, in a world a great, great distance afar, the beloved brother Chewbacca, a hairy Ethiopian seaman of renown, skilled in the use of the bow, with a mighty voice which he did raise, and verily praised the Lord with all continually, who wore neither sandals nor robe. Him they suffered to win the casting of Urim and Thummim alway, even the drawing of lots, lest he tear the limbs from golden and silver idols, and break them asunder, even as testifieth the apostle Luke. Verily unto the children of Israel, even unto the end of the age. Amen. There just might be a certain lack of cultural comprehension. People might be leaping in to make gambling mandatory at church, or rules that godly men must not wear sandals. So a lot of people like paraphrase, 
The paraphrasing approach, though, relies heavily upon the paraphraser correctly interpreting the message of the original work and being able to rethink and reword things so that multi-leveled meanings, literal and symbolic, cultural and perennial, somehow still come across. The older folk in our church really hated the NIV. It took the arcane, flowing, lofty, densely Shakespearean language of our King James Bible, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And turned it into something altogether more choppy and plain-sounding. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are upsetting you would castrate themselves. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Don't? We're having the apostle use 20th century English contractions now? It sounded less mystical, more modern than Lord of the Rings would ever dare be. It sounded all normal and plain, blunt somehow, not magic. And you could tell the apostle was doing a dick joke. It wasn't even obscured in a bunch of ancient language. He was straight out saying, There are men still trying to make all you new Christians from among the Gentiles cut your foreskins off? I am so tired of them. I wish those guys would just cut their own dicks off entirely and be done with it. To us, it all sounded very disrespectful. We said it was taking the things of God and lowering them to an everyday human level. We were willing to fight over it. Time proved it was something we were willing to lose church members to also. We definitely put things like translations in a more important place than things like maintaining human relationships. When people like Jesus prayed to God the Father in modern translations like the NIV, these translations depict the Son of God referring to the Father as you instead of thee. Now this was something people at my church did not want their kids doing. Irreverent, you see. The irony is that although thee and thou sound more formal and respectful than you and your, because they aren't everyday talk for us, they were actually the more informal word choices when the translation was made. Aren't thou kidding me? This is why the old Amish joke is that a father snaps at his disrespectful son, don't thee thou me. The Amish dad can call his son thou, but that son had better be respectful and call his father you. It's like the French vous rather than tu. So we'd gotten that backward. Not that we would have cared if we'd known. We were being peculiar and archaic, and we weren't going to stop until glory. Because what was more important than recognizing that some of what we thought traditional hadn't been traditional very long? That it needed to sound old and unusual. And we wanted everything about our culture to be old and unusual. We wanted to be old and unusual ourselves. We wanted an unbroken lineage of tradition right from Jesus and Paul with no changes made. Never mind that goof Peter. We wanted to be able to claim to be the only Christians following the structures clearly laid out in detail in the Word of God properly. The New Originals The simple fact was that the Brethren Movement had only really got going a century and a half previous, rather than two millennia ago. It was, compared to many church groups, a rank noob. But this was something we didn't really admit. 
We claimed that the brethren were just continuing something that had been going on clearly since the days when the Bible was written. No, we weren't some new group. We were the original Christians, more traditional and scripture-based than the Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox, certainly. And we certainly didn't add all of our own creepy, frilly crap to it like they did. So we tried pretty hard, stopping short of using Latin, to sound ancient, to feel like we were praying and talking like Paul, James, John, and Peter. How brethren people did things shifted dramatically during that first generation of becoming a known quantity in the 1800s. The one right place thing took over, for one. They had at first sought out visiting pastors and ministers and priests they believed to be true Christians and looked to worship with them by breaking bread together to show that being Christians transcended what churches we claim to be part of, to start something broader than that, to worship together as Christians, regardless of what church affiliation we otherwise pursued. They did this routinely to begin with. All this was to show that there ought to be a form of Christian unity superior to that seen in all us hiding from one another in our separate church groups. But they soon moved to requiring a form of unofficial membership if one was to take communion insisting eventually that members frequent the local brethren group only, where once Methodists might go to their own church in the morning and then later in the day break bread with brethren folk, soon enough the brethren Sunday morning routine was an or rather than an and. No Methodists welcome to partake until they forswore ties to that church group. Important to keep the Lord's table free from the errors of Methodism. Note how the Lord's Table and Plymouth Brethren Church membership start to become increasingly synonymous in their minds at this point. We don't call ourselves the Plymouth Brethren. We call ourselves those gathered to the Lord's name around his table. Anyone the Plymouth Brethren do not recognize, or who does not recognize the correctness of the Plymouth Brethren, is believed to be not gathered to the Lord's name and not around his table. For their part, back in the day, the Methodists and Baptists preferred to meet separately as well. Human beings felt better about being able to define and control who was and who wasn't a member, and who was the boss of whom. In fact, many today claim that the Brethren had to stop breaking bread with Christians from other groups, partly due to pressure from the leaders of said churches, who needed the Plymouth Brethren to act like just one more church. The whole point of the Brethren movement had been to not simply be one more church. It was supposed to be an alternative to that splitting up into human systems, something more in keeping with the description of Christian dealings in the New Testament than what mere churches were up to. Older, better, more open, more scriptural, something simple that included all Christians, regardless of affiliation, something you didn't have to join because the blood of Christ made you part of it already. It certainly wasn't supposed to be a sect or denomination, because those things were bad. The very word ecclesia was being misused, we were taught, when translated as church rather than multitude or throng. Church should always and only have a capital, we were taught, because church always and only meant all Christians, not just ones in a specific Christian subgroup. The concept of a church, we were taught, was unscriptural and against the will of God. So, we claimed, we were not one of those. We were not just a church. We were part of the church. John Nelson Darby, who popularized much of what became conventional brethrenism, said that the notion of a clergyman was, quote, a sin against the Holy Spirit, end quote. 
This is why, as a child, I viewed pastors as perverse sinners supplanting a member of the Trinity. I love how the Brethren movement was originally meant to be something higher or deeper than mere church membership, but I think we have to admit that that all ended when Brethren people started trying to correct and control beliefs and ecclesiastical connections. That is how the allegedly non-sectarian option fell prey to sectarianism. In the mid-1800s, when the fight for power and say took over entirely, pushing all other considerations to the back burner. Suddenly, requiring members to leave other churches before worshiping with us became more important than not acting like a church by requiring this. And so, where once brethren people could genuinely deny being any form of church whatsoever they had before the early brethren had passed away, become a church just like any other in all but taking a name. They felt somehow that not putting a name on the sign out front and not writing down the rules and not having a printed membership list or creed all magically made those things deniable. But a passing glance at what was going on showed the true story. To anyone, we were a Christian church called the Plymouth Brethren with a clear membership list defining who could take communion. We had a clear hierarchy defining who could and could not preach and do various jobs. We had a lot of rules, none of which were written down. We had defined doctrine, and if you sounded like you saw things slightly differently, you'd be asked not to spread that bad doctrine around. All of this was inarguable, but we denied every bit of it, because honest, we weren't a church. I grew up with embarrassment over all of this. I'd be asked, what church do you go to? And I was absolutely supposed to say, I don't go to a church. I just meet a few times a week with a small group of believers who are gathered by the Holy Spirit according to the divinely inspired word of God to the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in the day, we always said that we didn't go to church, and we didn't call it our church. We called it the meeting, going to meeting. To this day, we talk of people who've left the meeting, or about meeting thinking, to avoid a formal name. I say church, and I say brethren culture, so I'm not talking gibberish to outsiders and to be able to talk about the culture as a thing at all. The first rule of being Plymouth Brethren is you don't talk about being Plymouth Brethren. The second rule of Plymouth Brethren is there's no such thing as Plymouth Brethren. When I was 10, I knew that speech. I knew I was supposed to say it to Presbyterian and Pentecostal and Free Methodist kids who saw all the odd rules I had to follow and understandably wanted to know what kind of freaky church ours was. I knew that little speech by heart, but I never had the heart to say it. I knew it would be a dickish thing to say to someone honestly asking a sincere question, someone being friendly and curious. I don't go to church. Well, what are you doing five times a week then? I could feel arrogance and evasiveness in that whole little speech. Louisa, from my TW group, writes, When I was around Christian students in high school, I dreaded the question, where do you go to church? because I knew I couldn't explain it as the meeting was so different from whatever church they attended. I wished I didn't feel like I wanted to hide where I went and what we did and didn't do that was so different from their experience. Once I brought a Christian girlfriend with me to a large meeting, reading meeting, which I tried to remember to call a Bible study when I invited her. She was puzzled as to why the women could not participate, so of course I showed her the verse in 1 Corinthians 14 about women not speaking. She never returned. I was puzzled as to how to hold two truths simultaneously, 
The meeting was the group Christ is most pleased with because the meeting most obeyed the New Testament in how it operated as a group, along with the fact that I felt awkward and embarrassed about the meeting, so didn't feel eager to invite anyone from school, especially since Kim never asked to return. And people often ask me what church I went to all the time. Because of the constant attendance and the other rules I had to follow, the rules were what made me stand out at school, all right, were what clued other Christian kids to the fact that I was part of some freaky church. No movies, television, dancing, cards, alcohol, Halloween, and Christmas were the most obvious identifiers. Church, sorry, meeting, five times a week? They wanted to know if I was Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, of course. Those groups had remarkably similar rules. Shelley writes, In high school, a Jehovah's Witness boy asked me out because I was the only girl at the school whose religion was pretty much like his. I was offended. Aside from not being a very flattering reason to be asked out, I was offended that he would compare the meeting to the horribly ungodly Jehovah's Witnesses. When I grew up, which I did thankfully, and came to my senses, I learned that they think they are the ones who are right and the only ones who are right sounds vaguely familiar. Because we reeked of elitist isolationism. No, we would not be sending a pastor to speak at the tell-it-like-it-is salvation festival the churches in our town were holding that weekend. We didn't have pastors anyway. We weren't a church. Churches were wrong. The idea of clergy was a sin against the Holy Spirit. Jay and Darby said so. I knew we had freaky rules, no matter how much we said that as Christians we were free and under no obligation to follow any rules. I knew that the scripted response I'd been given was a sneaky attempt to deny the simple fact that I was a member of one of the local Plymouth Brethren churches. So when people asked me what church I went to five times a week, I just said, my church doesn't have a name or a minister or musical instruments, but other people call us the Plymouth Brethren, the Tunbridge Wells Plymouth Brethren to be specific. There are lots of kinds of brethren groups. They're not that different from modern Quaker meetings. You know that little red brick and white building with a sign on it around the corner from the sober theater? That's us. And before the divisions, the Brethren culture was so large in our area that half the time people would say, The Brethren? Yeah, I've heard of that. Isn't that the one that Harry Gardner and Tom Luby and Angie Anderson and Steve James's families are members of? I always wondered what that building with the Bible verses and the sign out front but no name was. My dad made the sign on the front of that building. He put those verses on with the vinyl sticky letters. We don't have very many members anymore nowadays, and not one of those people I just mentioned meet with that group or would be allowed to take communion there next Sunday. Nor me, nor even my dad. We're all out. Wicked people. But my dad's sign is still up there, with the Sunday morning breaking a bread service still omitted from the sign, as that's not for an audience of outsiders, he told me. One day, they may replace my dad's sign, erasing the last bit of evidence that anyone in my family ever went there. When in Roman Catholicism Joel did me the favor recently of contrasting how I was taught the Bible at Brethren Sunday School and how he was taught it at Catholic Elementary and Catholic High School. Joel said that it seemed like I'd been taught mainly what Jesus said, and Old Testament stuff about obeying God and following rules, how the Jewish people would grumble, blame God, and disbelieve him, and so he'd kill a bunch of them. Joel said that the Catholic way was different, less Old Testament stuff. It focused more on what Jesus did. It was mainly all about fantastic miracles he performed, and nothing much else. Walking on water, 
helping Peter walk on water, quelling storms at sea, multiplying the number of fish available for people to have for lunch, summoning fish into nets, just like God had summoned the great fish to swallow Jonah. Jesus was being presented as Aquaman, only slightly better, king of the Jews rather than king of the seven seas. It was mostly sea, boat, and fish related, though, right down to the fish superhero emblem. Joel said that the focus for little Catholic kids was upon the magic. I mentioned how Jesus himself got tired of being pressured to do miracles, how he said the Jews always wanted miracles, while the Greeks always wanted wisdom, philosophy. It was like Joel was taught the miracles while I was taught the philosophy or doctrine. So I was being taught to obey rules and believe correctly and have a submissive, unquestioning, uncomplaining attitude by instructive stories about bad things happening to rebellious, questioning, complaining people in the Bible. Joel, on the other hand, was being taught that if you did Catholic stuff, you could be a witness to genuine magic. The host was magic that you got to eat. Trend substantiation. The priest was magic. The Pope, infinitely more so. They had magic robes and staves and wands and cups and things. And the hats. Maybe if you were a really good Catholic, you could be a saint yourself. In fact, to be one, you had to have done some magic. And there were books with pictures of all the magic Bible stuff for the kids to be drawn in by. Joel talked about how, when he was in Catholic school, things Jesus said were generally presented as part of a video or puppet show or larger production. But Joel said that any central message that Jesus might have been presenting was soon buried in everything else going on in the production. The content of Jesus' pronouncements didn't seem to get through. There was a larger agenda. If anything, Jesus' own status quo challenging messages had been kind of supplanted or overshadowed by a bunch of so be kind to grandma and always go to mass kind of morality thing turned into a lesson for a Catholic school whose main job wasn't to cause kids to ask spiritual questions or seek God, but simply to reaffirm the importance and worth of the Catholic system. The focus on Jesus of Nazareth became about scoring correct answers on school tests and assignments to get certifiably Catholic. Sounds like it mostly delivered a message of attend Mass and listen to the priest, know the miracles and the saints who did them, to the extent of entirely losing sight of what Jesus was saying having really used Jesus and his agenda as a way to try to add divine weight to their own. Living for the Camera We were taught from a young age that God was watching us every moment, even when we weren't at church, even when we weren't awake. From the moment we woke up to the moment we fell asleep, the eyes of the Lord were in every place, beholding the evil and the good. We'll sing it through twice, and then we will sing it all together. Ready? tape we really liked of Nancy Weeks and her sister Bonnie Imbo sweetly singing that. 
To us, Bonnie and Nancy was a popular brethren singing duo, our Simon and Garfunkel or Donnie and Marie, and we eagerly awaited another hit single from those two. At Sunday school, we were rewarded with stickers for memorizing that verse. The eyes of the Lord in every place, beholding the evil and also the good. And yet, how it got passed down to me, it might just have read, God's Big Brother security cameras are in every place recording every one of your evil, wicked deeds. Sunday school teachers told us over and over again, you may hide something from your mom, you may fool your dad, but you can't fool God. He sees everything. There is nothing you do that he doesn't see. Years later, when I first went to a Pentecostal service, there was no speaking in tongues. No one was slain in the spirit, no rolling in the aisles, but there was a sermon about how God has the best CSI. You may fool the police, but you'll never fool God. There was in that Pentecostal sermon no mention of Jesus whatsoever, though. Our guilt was presented with no solution. Perhaps that was shared a different week. I worried that God watched me when I was on the toilet. I didn't like to picture angelic beings witnessing that humble, everyday human event because angels don't poop. I don't remember being taught that God ever really saw us doing good things and liked them. In fact, all our righteousnesses were as filthy rags anyway, right? We'd memorize that one. We were told over and over that we were nothing, and then also told about how we'd grow up to be people who were tempted to sin in even more ways than we already were tempted as children. Wicked, naughty part stuff. Bar stuff. We knew we were nothing. Nothing good anyway. And we were to remember that, while also remembering to give an outer image of purest piety to the unsaved looking on. Ruth writes... I remember going with my dad to buy a used typewriter, the old-fashioned kind, from an unsaved person. He had me type a sentence, any sentence that came to mind, to test the typewriter. My sentence, at ten years old, Ruth is a wicked person. He scolded me but good on the way home, that that was a bad testimony, and that I was no longer wicked but forgiven by the work of Christ. I had heard so often that we were wicked people that that was my default setting. Ruth was wicked to say she was wicked, even when not being serious. Because she wasn't, so it was wicked to say so. Which just showed how wicked our hearts are, didn't it? Like Ruth, I lived my childhood on security camera, as it were. God knew if you had a telescreen and had watched Super Friends. Naturally, if he was looking at us and everything we did, both good and bad, the only good we could possibly do was not to do all the fun stuff. And the bad, of course was doing the fun stuff. Sin wasn't just shoplifting or lying. It was watching Knight Rider or playing the Pac-Man machine at the mall. It was swimming on Sunday. It was listening to Kiss on the radio. It was saying the word fart. In fact, it was even wanting to do those things. God looked into our hearts and saw when we wanted to do sinful worldly things, and we were screwed from that point on. Ruth says, I always felt like I was on stage all the time. That awareness governed every word and dress choice, every action. I believe on stage mainly refers to feeling watched by the other church folk. But for children, being watched by the church folk and being watched by God kind of blurred together into the same thing. I was always terribly aware that God was watching me all day long. But it had never occurred to me that he might be smiling. Ever. 
or that he liked anything very much at all. Jake didn't grow up brethren, but he says the same kinds of things about his current problematic view of God. I don't trust him, really. The idea that he wants me to be happy and is actually for me is quite new to me, regardless of how much I've heard it. It's hard to accept and swallow when you are so accustomed to dwelling in the pressure of needing to do more and under the weight of constant shame. I do connect with being troubled by the idea that we have to hide from God to have any fun. I thought that for a long time, but I'm coming to recognize the beauty in things like listening to some beats and writing some poetry. I'm coming to see God in that. Definitely a big change since my teens, even though I've only been out for a year or so. Melody, whose brethren group was so indistinguishable from mine that we can't figure out what our nameless groups even called each other, grew up with this kind of attitude to begin with, but says nowadays... I no longer feel the need to hide from him. Growing up, I didn't even know that he was interested in my hopes and dreams. I only thought he was interested in how well I behaved, that is, didn't do bad things, smoke, drink, have sex. Carol from the Internet says she had less trouble of this kind with her understanding of God than I did. I never had too much of that view, even when in the Taylor Brethren or out. My personal God was always more sensible and benign and understanding than that. He created us for fuck's sake. I think I instinctively knew that it was actually the mere mortals who were doing the waiting to pounce and punish. Hypocritical bastards. Anne says... I just struggle to believe that what I want matters, rather than being stupid or trivial. God isn't pouncing, he's just dismissive or uninterested in my unique personality traits. God would rather I be sacrificing myself to help others. Ignoring my own desires for beauty and meaning and, and just working hard at a job where I help others, even if it is something I don't care about. I developed my love of singing from the simple fact that we sang a whole bunch of songs at those five meetings a week. We sang an awful lot of very instructive songs. They were a big part of how we were indoctrinated. Songs and stories are how you program children. Ask any kindergarten teacher or television kids show presenter. Another Sunday school hymn that we sang a lot said, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above looking down in tender love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. This song then went on to warn little ears about what they heard, little hands about what they did, little feet about where they went, and little mouths about what they said. By the time I was a teenager, I'd sang these cautionary songs about a watchful God many hundreds of times each. And with that latter lyric, though the word love is sure in there all right, that song didn't ever make me feel loved as a kid. It made me feel spied upon, and like we had to earn acceptance from God. But that we couldn't, not really, because of stuff we might see or like. Spider-Man was having some trouble fighting Dr. Octopus this month, it seemed. But I wasn't supposed to be seen flipping through the comic on the spinner rack at the corner store. It was part of the evil world and its seductive blandishments, and I was being a poor testimony. There is nothing about mercy, grace, or forgiveness in that song, really. Its message is typically mixed. This was, essentially, the heart of Sunday school. Okay now, children, don't sin, because God loves you. He's watching everything you do. He made hell. He's watching 24-7. Obey adults. We love you, 
and just want to help you keep from angering our loving God who keeps the fires of hell hotter than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's fiery furnace in Babylon. God loves you. Don't sin. He's watching. I think what I was really hearing most often from a lot of sources was a thinly disguised version of your parents don't want you to misbehave because it will make the family look bad to the other people at church. So they're scaring you with God. Here's another children's hymn, one which we sang most Sundays, about the Lord Jesus looking down from heaven to make sure we were shining for him. Shining meant preaching to others about sin, hell, and the devil, and it meant living a life free of all those normal things that regular folks did. Note the last verse, which explicitly states that Jesus is looking down from heaven, checking to make sure we're shining brightly for him, and he will help us only if we do. Otherwise, we're on our own. Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear light Like a little candle burning in the night In this world of darkness, so we must shine You in your small corner and I in mine Jesus bids us shine first of all for Him Well, He sees and knows it if our light grows dim He looks down from heaven to see us shine You in your small corner and I in mine Jesus bids us shine then for all around Many kinds of darkness in this world abound Sin and want and sorrow, so we must shine You in your small corner and I in mine Jesus bids us shine as we work for Him Bringing those that wander from the paths of sin He will ever help us if we shine You in your small corner and I in mine Until I was in high school, if my parents felt I had disobeyed a rule or hidden something from them or spoken disrespectfully or shoved my sister or anything like that, they often chose to hit me on the right hand 10 or 15 times with a large wooden paddle my father had constructed when I was little. It had a Bible verse written on each side about how the rod of correction could drive foolishness out of my heart. I was literally hit with the Bible over and over. And my father usually told me that he wasn't doing this because he wanted to, but that God was making him. So for me, a big part of my experience of God was that he was making my dad hit me with Bible verses written on a wooden paddle. Many parents presented God as someone who was far pickier and angrier than they were, kind of a wait-till-your-heavenly-father-gets-home kind of thing. Your earthly parents might show compassion and slack off on their punitive duties due to inherent weakness, but our Divine Father was perfect. He only approved of perfect people, and he punished everything that wasn't perfection. For this cause, many were weak and sickly among us, and some slept or were dead. God killed people who disobeyed. They told us this. To think that perhaps this use of God to frighten children out of wanting Star Wars t-shirts and Incredible Hulk piggy banks might have provided many of us with genuine problems in connecting lovingly to God later in life. 
that it did not help us understand what God showing mercy might be like, that it made us grow up never expecting to ever be forgiven even the smallest indiscretions? Not the most ridiculous conclusion to draw. The fear worked, though. It made me follow all the rules. It made me fill with shame and dread at the very idea of breaking them. Rapture Fear I will now address something that is a reality for many evangelical kids. Even brethren-raised occultist Alistair Crowley relates in his memoirs that this experience was part of his childhood. That whole thing that happens when you can't find your parents for a moment and think, the rapture has happened, and I wasn't really saved after all, and I'm left behind. So many of us went through that. I hear about it over and over. The house would get too quiet, and you'd call for a parent and not be able to find them because they'd gone up the road for something or were in the backyard, or it was nighttime and you couldn't for a moment hear your parents breathing as they slept in the next room. And suddenly, your own special Christian kid's version of a zombie apocalypse scenario unfolded before your fearful heart. Every single Christian in the entire world had vanished. Now five-year-old you would have to fend for yourself all alone as God slowly destroyed the world with apocalyptic Lovecraftian terrors crawling out of the sea under a moon the color of blood while earthquakes, volcanoes, and unnatural disasters tore the earth apart. It would be a matter of trying to stay alive as long as possible to avoid the awaiting eternity of torture in hell. That's a lot for a five-year-old to deal with on a weekly basis. These little fits could come upon one when separated from one's parents at the supermarket, and whenever one came home to an inexplicably empty house. Even if one was uptown and no one was answering the phone at home, it happened to some of us quite frequently. The more seriously we took God in the Bible, the more often it seemed to happen. It was to be suddenly orphaned over and over and over Elizabeth writes, I used to wake up during the night. It was especially on the hot summer nights in Ontario. It was to check my parents' bedroom and see if they were still there. They left their bedroom door open during the summer because it was so hot. When my mother found out I was doing that, she said that we didn't know when the Lord would return. It could happen at any time, not just during the night. It behooved us to be ready. Of course, we knew that we were supposed to be saved and that for all eternity, but we also knew that it was bad doctrine to believe that one could lose one's salvation. People who weren't clear on the doctrine of eternal security were most likely not true Christians. So if a child fearfully doubted his eternal security, perhaps it was clinching evidence that he had never had salvation to begin with, that his five-year-old doctrine was shoddy, and so he'd end up in hell. Fascinated with the new experience of being able to look things up on the internet and with the fact that the wickedest man in Britain, the depraved junkie occultist Alistair Crowley, had been raised Plymouth Brethren, I was also quite interested to see him include this vignette in his memoirs. One fine summer morning at Red Hill, the boy, now eight or nine, got tired of playing by himself in the garden. He came back to the house. It was strangely still, and he got frightened. By some odd chance, everybody was either out or upstairs. But he jumped to the conclusion that the Lord had come and that he had been left behind. It was an understood thing that there was no hope for people in this position. 
Apart from the second advent, it was always possible to be saved up to the very moment of death. But once the saints had been called up, the day of grace was finally over. Various alarms and excursions would take place as per the apocalypse, and then would come the millennium, when Satan would be chained for a thousand years, and Christ reign for that period over the Jews regathered in Jerusalem. The position of these Jews is not quite clear. They were not saved in the same sense as Christians had been, yet they were not damned. The millennium seems to have been thought of as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, but apparently it had nothing to do with eternal life. However, even this modified beatitude was not open to Gentiles who had rejected Christ. The child was consequently very much relieved by the reappearance of some of the inmates of the house, whom he could not imagine as having been lost eternally. I ran this rapture fear question by some brethren people on Facebook. William said that the scripture was very clear, and so we shouldn't doubt our salvations, because it was wrong to doubt it. Very comforting. James wrote that this fear of being left behind was a good way to warn children about hell, just as you warned them not to run across a busy street. Still others saw it as normal and healthy, but these recurrent waking nightmares were absolutely horrifying to a child who believed everything he'd been taught at meeting, a child who thought most frequently about whatever was talked about most frequently and earnestly there. I'll never forget these little fits of apocalypse They often happened in shopping malls if my parents wandered off. Earning Grace We brethren people didn't believe we had to earn our way to salvation from hell, but we absolutely were raised to believe that we had to earn blessing from God. When people died suddenly, someone always said, The Lord is speaking, with death, because that's how our God spoke. We weren't raised to celebrate Christmas or believe in Santa Claus, but it is really no wonder we kind of grew up confusing the Almighty God with old St. Nick. Except instead of, if you're bad, Santa won't get you anything for Christmas, it was more like, if you consistently indulge yourself in worldly things like Battlestar Galactica, God won't bless you, might literally kill you, or your sister, or your mom. I was haunted for years by a story they told us in Sunday school of a little boy who was lazy and rude and never obeyed his mother, then found her dead on the couch one day. And it was too late to tell her he was sorry. Laura says this is from Dan and Joyce, Discover a Hive of Busy Bees. Be obedient. If you were good, of course you wouldn't get anything special. You were supposed to be good. There was no reward involved, and really good people didn't want anything anyway. The Lord was our shepherd. We weren't supposed to want stuff. I've seen Christians on the internet each Christmas season ranting about how blasphemous it is to ascribe the traits of God to Santa. Like Santa can compete as a concept. Is God really all that much like Santa Claus? If he is, no wonder people stop believing in him when they grow up. Or is there altogether more to him? Is God just a meter maid in the sky? And is this really the gospel message as presented in scripture as it should be given to children? If Christians don't want to get hurt by God, you have to earn that by living the joyless life of sacrifice that he requires of all his children. No wonder grace seemed too good to be true to many of us. No wonder the concept of love was all tied up in feelings of shame and being spied on and controlled. 
When our parents told us we could not watch cartoons or go out and get candy for Halloween or have our pictures taken with Santa Claus or have a Christmas tree or go swimming on Sunday when we were at someone's cottage or wear shorts on Sunday, they wanted us to know that they were denying us these things because God was making them do it and because they loved us. And they did love us. They absolutely did. But the fact that sometimes they were protecting the family's church status at our expense was not lost on us. We could tell pretty much every time they put our family's church reputation over the individual well-being of its members. The family was, among other things, a show, performing every single day, hoping for rave reviews, terrified of going over poorly and being forced to declare moral bankruptcy and shut down. And the legalism got ratcheted up over the years, both in our family and in our church. There was a battle going on. The world was invading our homes right down to showing up on children's clothing and lunch boxes at first, and then even on Kleenex and breakfast cereal boxes. More than one brethren mother poured the Cheerios into large Tupperware bins so she could spare her kids a glimpse of Clash of the Titans, the Jungle Book, or the Empire Strikes Back, and simply tossing out the plastic toys and stickers her kids might want before they caught a glimpse of them. The family was under threat. How could children grow up to love God, the true master of the universe, if they were into He-Man and Battle Cat? or that masked menace Spider-Man. Some of us grew up believing in a god who was suspiciously like J. Jonah Jameson from the 60s Spider-Man cartoon, chomping his cigar, hating young people, pounding his fist on the desk all the him damn time. My mom didn't toss out our breakfast prizes usually, and I often asked her to buy cereal purely based on what toys and stickers were inside it. I love that stuff. You can still go on eBay to this day and buy the cheap plastic toys I coveted back then. I may have done that a few times, maybe more than a few times. When I was born, our family had a TV. I remember Bugs Bunny, the Irish Rovers, Sonny and Cher, Tony Orlando and Don, the Harlem Globetrotters, Archie's Funhouse, Shazam, Magilla Gorilla, the Wonderful World of Disney, Speed Buggy, and Scooby-Doo. By the time I went to kindergarten, my father's conscience had been exercised to the point of him leaving our little black-and-white TV out to the trash. M.A.S.H. was getting too racy. When I was little, I went out for Halloween one memorable time dressed as Steve Austin, the cybernetic $6 million man. But soon enough, the Satan-serving horrors of the holiday caused it to be removed from our lives as well. The comic books went. Star Wars figures. Numerous slang phrases. Christmas. One Christmas, my mom's step-parents gave us presents, and we weren't allowed to open them. Eventually, they were returned unopened. The legalistic, censorous pencil was ever poised over our lives. Every newspaper or magazine article warning parents of the possible dangers of something or other was cut out and photocopied and passed around. Fear and responsibility, and we were under no illusion that it wasn't a competition. Which family among us was worldliest? My dad was admittedly controlling, but one thing that can certainly be said for him was that he didn't helicopter. He had his own stuff to do, and didn't follow us around hovering and spying on us. He was always off doing work. Mom, too. To this day, if you go to visit my dad, he's going to be outside, looking after sheep and chickens, and his miniature horse, and the llama, feeding lambs, literally. Growing up, my parents weren't ever very far away at all, 
but they weren't over our shoulders either. They were too busy. But this helicoptering thing my parents didn't do was part of our view of God. Be careful, little eyes, because your loving father, God, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, stalking around up there, waiting to pounce on any misstep or failing. One of the more modern Sunday school teachers at our meeting had study materials from some church, and they included things like, Thank Thank you, God, God for for peanut peanut butter, butter, and The Lord Lord, our our God God made made kitties. My father scoffed at this. Where were the stories of the rich man burning in hell, of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead by the Holy Spirit for lying, of God smiting the Israelites with a plague of fiery serpents, of Gehazi getting cursed with leprosy for trying to turn a prophet prophet? Because that was real Bible. I agreed. I liked the intense, hardcore stuff best. Screw kitties. When I first read about Aslan, the friendly, powerful, joyful Christ line in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, though, I suddenly for the first time thought that Jesus and heaven actually sounded less scary and tedious and perhaps downright nice. Could heaven be fun? Could one enjoy talking to Jesus more than talking to the dentist? Did God make good things and want us to enjoy them rather than sacrifice them for him? Crazy thoughts. I didn't want my parents to know I'd read the Narnia books at first because I feared they'd be upset at how different a view of Christian things C.S. Lewis was presenting. It was like a whole different religion. Joy and fun were part of it. Some people's parents threw the Narnia books away when they discovered they were a Christian allegory, with pagan creatures and, of course, the fun, because we weren't here on earth to enjoy ourselves or have fun. There was a lesson I seemed to have imbibed with my mother's own electric stove-heated instant baby formula. If something is easy or fun, it's simply not worthy of our time. If life's not tedious, empty, and hard, you're doing it wrong. We were here to serve the Lord. We needed to be of use. And what God needed was people to be a good example of sacrificing pleasure so this display of righteousness might be seen by all. Excellence was seen in subtracting all contaminants, scooping out everything that wasn't worthy. This is all we knew about what virtue was. It was seen in the absence of delight.